In his short story, The Capital of the World, um, author Ernest Hemingway explored family relationships, especially the relationships between a father and son. It's not entirely unlike the story of Joseph. Thanks, Brian. Set in Spain, the story revolves around a father and his teenage son, Paco, and Paco deeply desires to be a matador in Madrid. I mean, who doesn't, right? <laughs> and so, Paco escapes from under his father's control, and he runs away. And his father is devastated. He is desperate to reconnect, to reconcile, to restore their relationship. So the father follows his son to the capital of the world and takes out an ad in a local newspaper with a simple phrase. It said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. And the next day at noon, in front of that newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos waiting for their dad. <laughs> we all know that every relationship ruptures, right? Like Paco and his father, every relationship ruptures. Whether a father and a son, or a mother and a daughter, spouses and siblings, coworkers and covenant partners, even of this congregation, it's true. Relationships rupture. It's what they do. But Jesus' deepest desire is for those relationships that have ruptured to be repaired through, through repentance, through reconciliation, through restoration. Jesus desires that we would open up the newspaper, we would read those words, that we would run to that newspaper office at noon with 799 of our closest friends. And the season of Lent offers us an opportunity to give something up. Um, sometimes, though, that something is difficult to decide on, isn't it? What should I give up this year for Lent? So uh, we're in a series where we're exploring all the ways that we can wave the white flag. We can throw in the towel. We can raise our hands and give up those things that keep us from following Jesus more closely. So we've thought together about giving up, comparing ourselves to others, and instead relying upon God's providence. We've thought together about giving up the fear and the worry that can so plague our hearts and instead trust in God's care and compassion. And this morning I want to invite us to give up grudges. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story similar to Hemingway's. It's all about a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Anybody heard that one before? He says, if one of them should wander off, would not that shepherd leave the 99 to look for the one? And when he finds it, Jesus says, that shepherd is happier about the one that was found than the 99 that did not wander off. Jesus says, that's how it should work in church. He continues in Matthew 18. He says, here's what happens if someone sins against you. First, you should go tell everybody about it and tell them how terrible the person is until they repent. <laughs> well, that's not quite right, is it? He says, first... First, go to the person and say, hey, you sinned against me. You wronged me. And if they don't listen, he says, well, then take one or two others. And if they don't listen, then involve the whole community. You see, we sometimes get that upside down and backwards, don't we? We tell everybody first. Jesus' teaching then prompts a question, a question from Peter, kind of the spokesman of the group. Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive the one who sins against me? Up to seven times? 
which was considered very generous. In much of the ancient world, offering forgiveness was considered a sign of weakness. And so, most first century rabbis would limit the offer of forgiveness to three. That's all you get. Sin against me once, shame on you. Sin against me twice, shame on me. Sin against me a third time, and there will not be a fourth. The relationship has ruptured beyond repair. But Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Our English translations smooth it out a bit. In the Greek, Jesus says 70 times 7. And this is true. Some ancient scribes actually did the math. (laughs) They transcribed Bibles with the result of the equation as if Jesus actually wanted us counting up that high. It's a lot of tally marks. Now, there's a connection all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. There's a man named Lamech. He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then I will avenge 70 times seven. Now, Jesus knows this story in Genesis 4, and Jesus' disciples know this story, and yet the kingdom of God apparently involves all new math. (laughs) Jesus says, therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Literally, it says the man was carried to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had would be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. What's he asking for? He's asking to be able to pay back this incredible debt. Now, Jesus' original hearers would have found that quite humorous. Um, The word for what he owed is the word myrios. It's where we get our word for myriad. It could also be translated as innumerable or countless. It would be 20 billion of our own dollars if we added it up literally. But it was more than was in circulation in the ancient world. And the implication is not that the money was borrowed and owed. No, it was more like it was embezzled and stolen. This is Charles Ponzi. This is Bernie Madoff. This is Anna Sorokin. But get this, servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins, like $20 today. Hey, remember, I bought lunch last week. You owe me. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. I bought Chipotle. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. The same thing he had said. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and they went and they told the master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive from the heart. Do you ever wonder if Peter wished he hadn't asked the question? (laughs) 
C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, forgiveness, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea unless they have something to forgive. And then we can be a little bit more like Lamech, can't we? We can be a little more like Lamech. If, if Cain was avenged seven times, then I'm going for 490. In some ways, perhaps our culture has returned to that ancient perspective that sees forgiveness as a form of weakness. What's the right thing to do? What's the strong thing to do? It's to hold that grudge. It's to stand your ground. Or at minimum, to keep count. How many times, Lord? Now, then there's the opposite approach. To paper over the cracks, to sweep it under the rug, to say, whatever, it's not a big deal, when really it is. Followers of Jesus have been known for doing both of those two things. For keeping track or taking avenge. Or we have been known for papering over the cracks, sweeping it in the rug. Oh, it's no big deal. But really, we know it is a big deal. Jesus teaches us a third way. Different and distinct from either of those two. Instead of an either or, or keeping count, Jesus draws us into a narrative. He draws us into the story of God to see that our offer of forgiveness to someone else is intricately connected with the forgiveness we have already received. There's a great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin says, I feel bad that I called Susie names and I hurt her feelings. I'm, I'm sorry that I did it. And Hobbes responds, maybe you should apologize to her. And Calvin concludes, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. But Jesus' story reveals the obvious solution. Not holding a grudge or keeping count. Not sweeping it under the rug or papering over the cracks. Instead, Jesus invites us to recognize the reality that something unspeakable has occurred. Something that has caused a rupture in the relationship. Something that needs repair. And the only way that repair can happen is through repentance and reconciliation, work toward restoration. That's why Jesus gives those instructions. He tells the story about the 99 and the 1, and everyone thinks, that's wonderful. And then, and then he says, this is how it should work in the church. You're going to have rupture. You're going to need repair. Go to one another. Don't hold on to the grudge. See, we may be tempted to shrug our shoulders and pretend it didn't happen. We may be tempted to hold that grudge. Why? Because forgiveness is really, really hard. Forgiveness is really, really heavy. When something unspeakable has occurred, it can almost seem impossible. Remember our reading in Genesis chapter 50 earlier. Um, the story of Joseph is full of twists and turns, of highs and lows. It reads like a soap opera or a reality TV show that's not reality at all, right? Joseph's story is like none other, but in the end, he's faced with a question like we're all faced with, to hold the grudge or to forgive Remember his story. Uh, he starts off as a favorite son with a fancy coat, but he's sold into slavery by his very own brothers. He rises up the ranks, but then he's falsely accused. The gifts God's given him bring him up out of the pit of prison, and ultimately he is a national hero, second in command throughout all the country. 
then his brothers finally return. And the word that's used for forgive in Genesis chapter 50, we have read 41 times through the first 49 chapters of Genesis. But never once is that word translated forgive. 41 times throughout Genesis 1 through 49, we read the same word, and every time it's translated either lift up or bear or carry. Every time, Genesis 1 through 49, something is literally being lifted up. It's being born. It's being carried. And then the author of Genesis uses that exact word to describe what Joseph is asked to do. He's asked to forgive. See, that's what it means to forgive. It means to lift up, to bear, and to carry the thing that has been done to us. When we've been hurt, to carry it with us instead of throwing it back at the person who caused it. Instead of pretending like it didn't hurt. When we're asked to forgive, we're given the opportunity to carry the thing that has been done to us. Notice, Matthew picks up on it too. When he says that the man was carried to the king because he owed him $20 billion, well, of course he's carried. He doesn't want to go face that debt. He's embezzled. He is stolen, and yet he's carried. And yet when the king forgives the man that debt, the implication is the same. The king continues to carry the debt. Joseph's response in this story is so instructive for, for two reasons. First, Joseph asks the question. When asked to forgive, what does he say? Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God where, where I can decide whether or not to forgive? And then he makes a statement. This is even more profound. First he asks, am I in the place of God? And then he says, what you intended for evil, God has used for good. Can you imagine? Being sold into slavery by your own brothers. A life of ups and downs, of twists and turns, a, a soap opera kind of life. And yet Joseph can conclude what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The saving of many lives. Clara Barton, uh, the founder of the American Red Cross, uh, had a lot of grudges she could have held on to. And at one season in her life, she made this difficult decision not to hold on to those grudges anymore but instead to forgive those who had wronged her. Not long after, a friend of hers was asking about one of the instances for which she could have held the grudge, and the friend said, don't you remember what they did to you? And Clara Barton said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. <laughs> Joseph distinctly remembers forgetting. Why? For two reasons. One, he knows that he's not in the place of God. And two, he has a vision and can see that though his brothers meant it for evil, God has used it for good. Seems like Jesus is setting up a prerequisite or a precondition in this passage. If you don't do this, God won't do that. But really, that's getting it backwards. It goes the other way around. Jesus wants us to see that our offer of forgiveness... Our offer of forgiveness to another is participation in the economy of God's kingdom. 
Our offer of forgiveness to another is forgiving the 20 bucks because we've already been forgiven the 20 billion. It's like passing on a drop of water out of the big bucket of grace that God has already poured on us. It's breathing the breath of life for another that God has already breathed in us. And so Jesus says, to not pass on that water, it's we who die of thirst. To not pass on that breath, it's we who suffocate. Like Inspector Javert, right? Chasing down Jean Valjean. There's a man named Mike Reynolds, a native of Fresno, California. You may have heard his name. You've certainly heard his story. He became famous for authoring what became known as the Three Strikes Law. It's an understandable response to an unspeakable crime against his young daughter in downtown Fresno decades ago. Another person uh, named William Wilma Dirksen suffered a similar season after losing her daughter to an unspeakable crime. And their responses to that unspeakable crime could not have been more different. Wilma's response, because she's a part of a Mennonite community in Winnipeg, Canada, Wilma's response was shaped by the conversation in her community and in her congregation. Wilma's response was not to fight for legislation, understandable though it was that Mike Reynolds did so. Wilma had two distinct conversations. One of them was with a gentleman who stopped by her home uninvited late one evening. And he wanted to share with Wilma all that his family had been through after they struggled through a similar tragedy. This is what he told her. He said, as I fought for justice, I realized that what I call justice was another form of revenge. It became so intense that it negatively affected him in addition to the tragedy itself. There was increasing financial difficulties. There were trials, separation and breakup, dissolution of his family. He was now unable to work due to failing health, crippling anxiety, and many different medications that he was on to try to balance it all together. In essence, this man shared that as a result of this terrible tragedy, his reaction to the tragedy brought increased pain and difficulty because what he called justice was really a form of revenge. Wilma listened to that story, but she wasn't quite ready to forgive. Then a person in her congregation came to her one Sunday, someone with whom she worshipped week in and week out, and this friend had not been a victim of tragedy, but rather had been the perpetrator. This person had struggled with the sin that had led to the crime against Wilma's family. And Wilma concluded this, that to forgive her friend, she needed to make every effort to forgive the person responsible for the violence against her child. Not long after, a reporter asked Wilma and her husband Cliff how they felt about the culprit of the crime. Cliff said, we would like to know who the person or persons are so that we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. What an incredible response. We would like to know who this person or persons are so we could share a love that seems to be missing. And then Wilma spoke up. 
I can't say at this point I forgive this person. The interviewer wrote, however, that the stress was on the phrase, at this point. I can't say at this point I forgive the person. We've, done all, we've all done something dreadful in our lives, or we have felt the urge to. See, friends, all relationships rupture. And Jesus invites us to work toward repair, toward repentance, toward reconciliation, toward restoration. And there is literally only one way that that works in the world. We can hold that grudge, or we can count the times that we've forgiven, or we can try to sweep it under the rug and say it wasn't a big deal. There's only one way we can work toward repair, toward reconciliation, toward restoration, and the only way that works is to see ourselves as Paco, to see the ways that we are that wandering sheep. We are the one who's run away. We are the one who's escaped from out from under the control of our Father. And to see that Jesus came running after us. Like Hemingway's ad in the newspaper, right? Uh, Jesus is the word to us. What does he say? Meet me. All is forgiven. I love you. To see that Jesus lifted up, Jesus bore, Jesus carried our sin. There's a reason that, that the author of Genesis uses that word carry. There's a reason that Matthew picks up that word carry. And there's a reason that Jesus carried that cross because Jesus lifted up, bore, and carried our sin on that cross. All of it. Through Jesus we are forgiven. Through Jesus we are free. And Jesus lifted up. Jesus bore. Jesus carried the sin of those who have hurt us too. We can forgive that $20 because we've been forgiven the $20 billion. And when we see that Jesus carried not only our sin, but Jesus carried the sin of the person who sinned against us, we too can echo Joseph's question. Am I in the place of God? And what's more, we can see that what was meant for evil, God has used for good. What was meant for evil when Jesus lifted up, when Jesus bore, when Jesus carried that cross, what was meant for evil has been used by God for good the saving of the lives of many, the forgiveness and freedom offered to the entire world, and Jesus' new life three days later that sends us out with his message of reconciliation. May we see that we are Paco, and may we see in God's word that newspaper ad to us, meet me, all is forgiven, I love you. And may the world hear that message through our lives as well. Father, we give you thanks for that good news. It's so good, it's almost unbelievable. And God, we know that there have been unspeakable things that have been done to us in our life, and that there are unspeakable things that we have done to others. Would you help us to see that it is all within all forgiven within that bucket of your grace that you have poured out upon us because of Jesus, the one who has lifted up, who has borne, who has carried the cross, that we might be forgiven and free. 
and that we might offer forgiveness and freedom even to those who have sinned against us. God, would you give us the strength to lift up and to carry instead of cutting off, instead of throwing back. Would you lead and guide us as we are people who give up holding grudges. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.